thank you, Andrea. Um, so no, I'm not. I'm not slim. Uh, my name's Malcolm. I'm one of the one of the other leaders at at Mosaic. Uh, and and as I as I start this as I start this sermon, what we're gonna what we're gonna talk about today is Daniel three. So the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the and the giant golden statue. And so I want to start. I want to start with this example. I think it was about a year ago. And I was presenting at a conference in Augusta, Georgia, and it was around my dad's birthday. And if you've ever been to Augusta, you, you, you also might know that James Brown, the godfather of soul, spent, spent much of his childhood there. And there's a statue of him on Broad Street. So I thought, hey, I'll take a picture with it for, for my dad's birthday. So I did. But then I walked back to my car, and before I got in, I turned around and I saw another statue. Where James Brown's statue had been life-size, this one was 76 feet tall. But I didn't know what it was. So I walked up to it and found this description. Worthy to have lived and known our gratitude. Worthy to be hallowed and held in tender remembrance. Worthy the fabulous fame which Confederate soldiers won, who gave themselves in life and death for us. For the honor of Georgia, for the rights of the states, for the liberties of the South, for the principles of the Union, as these were handed down to them by the fathers of our common country. In memoriam, no nation rose so white and fair, none fell so pure of crime. Huh. So after I saw this, I, I walked quickly back to my car, and before I got in, I called my mom, breathlessly explaining what I had just read. And her response was, Malcolm, you, you know you're loud. I hope you're inside your car talking to me. Oh, right. Because loudly talking about the ridiculousness of white supremacy, the lost cause, and the Confederacy in the middle of Augusta, Georgia, was probably not necessarily a safe thing to do. And so I got in my car and continued to muse, right? My, this, this was my first physical encounter with this kind of idolatry. This was my first encounter with an imposing physical representation of a narrative that was not only false, but terroristic. In this case, it was the Confederacy and the lost cause. But, but in the case of, of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abad Negro, kids, just so you know, that's not actually how you pronounce Abednego's name. But the idolatry that they faced took a different form a giant 90-foot statue, possibly of Nebuchadnezzar, possibly of one of his gods. Whatever the case, it was the statue that screamed, I am significant. And Nebuchadnezzar was a ruler who demanded that those ruled by him said the same thing. And so the question this morning is this. When you're placed in a seemingly impossible situation, when your allegiance is tested, when it seems like there's no way out, what do you do? Well, you give the Lord an opportunity to, as my sermon is titled, Flex on the Haters. Please stand for the reading of God's word.
wait, wait, I just came back. Okay, I came back. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forth. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, this is from Daniel 3, 8 through 25 in the ESV version. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the chocolate bunny. Anyone? No? Nothing? Okay. The golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. The, then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. And rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have not left us to flail in ignorance. But Lord, you have, you have revealed to us who you are. 
and you've, and you've revealed to us, Lord, what you expect of us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see your glory in this word this morning. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So I want to address this passage in three movements. The haters, the heroes, and the holy one. The haters, the heroes, and the holy one. And so as set up, you'll, you'll remember that the, that the book of Daniel, particularly these first six chapters, are about the people of God in exile. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has, has run rampant through Israel and has carted off many of the elite. And in the case of David, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they get promoted within the kingdom, but they get re-educated along the way. They even get new names. Belteshazzar is Daniel, Shadrach is Hananiah, Meshach is Mishael, and Abednego is Azariah. But I'm not going to use their colonizer names during this sermon. Their Hebrew names are going to be good enough. So when you hear Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, know who I'm referring to. So in these first few verses of chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar lays out a new national policy. He builds a 90-foot-tall statue gilded with gold in the middle of a plain so that it would be easy to see from all around. And then he gathers all his boys together. Scripture says the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all of the officials. And his herald, his mouthpiece, tells them this. Hey, everyone in the kingdom, when you hear the instruments, fall down and worship this image. And if you don't, we're going to burn you alive. And being burned alive is no joke. It only really hurts at the beginning of the process. And once, it, and once you burn through the nerves, the skin no longer, no longer hurts and you die of choking to death. So those are the choices. Pledge your ultimate allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar or die an agonizing death. And so the command goes out. And soon after the command goes out, the haters come in. That's where our reading began. Certain, certain Chaldeans, better known in this case as either haters or snitches, come to Nebuchadnezzar and said, hey, king, those Jews over there, they're not listening to your mighty command. They're disrespecting you. So let's talk about the haters real quick. So their, so their reason for their snitching could be a few things. It could be the case that, that they, like the Romans who, who, would, who would come after them, link national peace to religious conformity. Here's what I mean by that. The Lord, the Lord told the nation of Israel numerous times that because God brought them out of Egypt and to the promised land, and because he is who he is, he's the only God to be worshipped. He also made it clear that everyone in the land was to live in that way. Otherwise, there would be fierce punishment. In later kingdoms, kings would see religious conformity as a sign of peace. When the gods aren't competing over human affection, then we experience earthly peace, they would say. And so that, that could have been a reason why the haters were quick to jump on nonconformity. But it seems to me that something else is actually more likely. This was, this was a case of jealousy and envy. And that's the way in which this often pops up in our lives. Perhaps, perhaps you've got haters. Perhaps you've received a promotion or, or particular blessing, and there are those around you who thought that you didn't deserve it or that they really deserved it and didn't get it or some other reason. However it happened, you may have people trying to undermine you, talk about you behind your back, 
snitch on you to your boss, all because they might want what you have. But maybe you're the hater. See, the, sev the seven deadly sins uh, map, map pretty nicely onto seven major social media outlets. Twitter could be wrath. There's a lot of anger on Twitter. Yelp, gluttony. Tinder, lust. Instagram, pride. And Facebook, for envy. You know the feeling that wells up in you when you see that so-and-so got married, or has a kid, or has a new home, or a new car. Facebook is great at stirring, stirring that up. And so that's what we're talking about when we hear of these Chaldeans. So they, so they take this envy to the big boss. And now, now the envy of the Chaldeans is about to lead to the execution of the Hebrews. And their report makes Nebuchadnezzar angry. Of course it does. How dare someone not bow to his will? Don't they know who he is? Nebuchadnezzar's pride looms large in these chapters, as large as the giant statue that he erected. And so this is the setup that our heroes, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are walking into. See, it's, it's weird to say those names, right? You're used to the Babylonian names imposed on them by their oppressors. You're not going to hear those names in this sermon. When the Hebrew young men are brought before the king, they're facing down their co-workers' envy and their boss's pride, and they're faced with a question. Is it true that you're not worshiping the image I set up? Maybe you didn't get the message, so I'll play the music again, and you do as you're told, or, you'll, or I'll burn you alive. And then, Nebuchadnezzar says, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? With that statement, Nebuchadnezzar reveals that this what this whole episode is about. It's about glory. It's about who is worthy of ultimate glory. Nebuchadnezzar clearly thought that he was. He had conquered much of the known world. He was big balling by any standards. And sometimes when you get a little money in your pocket, when you get a little power, you start to think that you're worthy of attention, worthy of glory, perhaps even worthy of worship. And so the question that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have to answer is this. Will you bow to the glory of a man? This was posed of them, but it's also posed of us almost on a daily basis, and it shapes our political theologies. It's funny that we're here with all these signs around because there's voting going on. The question that, the, one of the questions that we face is, will we sacrifice our commitment to Christ at the altar of political power? Will we sacrifice the vulnerable at the altar of our comfort in the pandemic? In your work, will you sacrifice your integrity to move ahead? Will you sacrifice your family for acceptance in the eyes of people? Who is worthy of glory? Well, let's ask Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Take a look at verse 16. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, our mind's made up and we won't turn back. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is literally the most hardcore thing that they could have said in this moment. Look, king, we don't even need to think about it. The God that we serve can save us from your hand, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to serve him. Is that the God that you know and serve? A God who you know can save you, but who you will serve even if he doesn't. 
this is one of the issues with the with or, or with the prosperity gospel that it, it presents us with a God who's who's apparently promised to save us from all physical harm, and then when our suffering continues, it bounces back on you. It's your fault you're suffering. You didn't believe hard enough. You didn't obey well enough, and all of these false narratives can swirl around in our heads. But that's not the God to whom Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have sworn their allegiance. No, this God is a God who is able to, de to deliver and a God who is willing to deliver. And even if he doesn't deliver in the way that we want, he's still a God worthy of our praise. Let me say that one more time. This is a God who is able to deliver and who is willing to deliver. And even if he doesn't deliver in the way that we want, he's still a God worthy of our praise. God does not promise to save us from every instance of physical danger. And there, are, and there are actually a few reasons for that. Here's, here's, here's one. Sounds kind of harsh, but it's true. Sometimes we're in the situations that we're in because of our own foolishness. If I go out in my car and the fuel light is on and I ignore it, I'm going to end up stranded. Often the Lord will warn us if we're on a path that ends in our destruction. And if we have no interest in heeding those warnings, we have little reason to expect deliverance when we find ourselves in trouble. But it's also the case that, that the Lord sometimes wishes to use our suffering to teach us. Deliverance comes, yes, but not in the way that we expect. I'm learning this as a new dad, as Desiree and I are trying unsuccessfully to get little Jasmine to sleep. If we, if we pick her up literally every time she cries, she'll never learn to sleep on her own. We're the same. If our Heavenly Father immediately stopped the pain every time we experienced it, suffering would never produce endurance, nor would endurance produce character, nor would character produce hope, as Paul outlines in Romans 5. Deliverance comes, though perhaps not as we expect. Now on its own, that, that, that could be enough to preach, but this, this story isn't over because it doesn't end with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's faithful, faithful proclamation. That faithful proclamation hit Nebuchadnezzar's ears as an insult. How dare you? Verse 19 says that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and his face shifted. He then ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter. In other words, as hot as possible. And he gathered some of his mighty men, more haters, to bind and throw the young men into the fire. And as is always the case with pride, it backfired as the mighty men who threw the boys in were burned up themselves. That just goes to show that when, when we act out of pride, there's always collateral damage. When we go down, we bring those around us down with us. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't looking at those men. He was looking into the furnace, and, and he asked the haters around him if they saw what he saw. Because he didn't see three men in the fire. He saw four. And the fourth looked like a son of the gods. The Lord had sent an angel. And the identity of that fourth person is not explicit. It, it, it could be the angel of the Lord, God himself. It, it could just be an angel that, that, that the Lord sent. But the point there is that God sent somebody to save these boys. God wanted to communicate that he was with his people in the fire. Hold on to that because it's coming back. Because when, he, because when Nebuchadnezzar called for the Hebrew boys to come out... They came out, and all the satraps, prefects, governors, all the leaders saw that they weren't even coughing. They weren't even hot. Their hair wasn't singed. They didn't smell like fire. They were just chilling. Then Nebuchadnezzar uttered these words, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, sorry, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, 
who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Blessed be the god who flexes on his haters. Blessed be the holy one. Nebuchadnezzar was most likely overwhelmed by the power of God because the miracle of being saved out of a super hot furnace is enough to blow anyone's mind. He went even further and he said, if anyone said anything about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah's God, that they should be torn limb from limb and their houses laid, laid in ruins. And then he promoted the three boys. Seems like a pretty quick turn, right? And seems like a marvelous narrative, right? Well, what if I told you that the Lord's work for you is all the more glorious? Nebuchadnezzar only saw the backside of the Lord's glory, so to speak. Because remember, this guy had a massively overblown understanding of his own importance. That's what drove him to build a giant statue of himself. And, and, and each of us, in our natural state, often think much of ourselves. Shoot, the main reason why we don't actually make a statue of ourselves is probably more from lack of resources than, than lack of desire. And when our idols are attacked, we lash out. If our brother or sister or neighbor calls us out, we immediately go to defensiveness. Hey, Malcolm, what, what you just said is actually pretty racist. What? How dare you? I'm not that kind of person. Hey, Malcolm, I, I really don't think you should be in a relationship with that person. What? How dare you pry into my personal life? There are some things that we hold on to tightly. And, though, and, and many of those things are things that ultimately lead to our destruction our own fiery furnace. And that's not just a metaphor. The song, All I Have is Christ, lays it out. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. The stakes aren't just physical fire. The stakes are endless spiritual fire. And that's terrifying, yes. But we also can't afford to forget it. No, fear is not our final motivator. We're going to get to that. But, but we can't shy away from the fact that the wages of sin is death. It's not a game. And yet the God we serve did not leave us in our hellbound race. We marched in our idolatry and often fall back into it. But our God did not leave us there in our helplessness. He did something about it. When we were hellbound with the flames licking at our heels, he didn't pluck us out. He dove in first. He said the wages of sin are always death. Someone needs to die. Blood must be spilt for the forgiveness of sin. And for those, for those listening at home, we, we learned that in the book of Leviticus. But God then says, as he told the Israelites, my people won't die. And it won't be animals either. It's time for the full plan to be revealed. I'm going to be the one who dies. When the Holy Trinity enacted their plan to save you, the very Son of God came to do it. He didn't send an angel like he did for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He pulled a Thanos after, after watching minions fail to get the Infinity Stones. Fine, I'll do it myself. In the, in the Lord's terms, let me flex on him. The Son of God leapt into the fire of human life with you. 
Hebrews says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This Jesus, the eternal son of God, took on flesh to live a life in solidarity with you. The gospel is not merely that he plucked you out, but that he also suffered what you suffer. He suffered with you and he died for you. And the author of Hebrews also says that this high priest sympathizes with our weaknesses and he is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. But Jesus, you never had kids. You don't know how much they get on my nerves. Have you seen God interact with his people? Remember when Jesus exasperatedly said in a, in a healing of a possessed boy that shows up in all three Gospels, uh, in, in Mark 9, 19, it goes, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? That sounds like an exasperated parent to me. But Lord, you never had to deal with sexual temptation. Well, you know what? I'm pretty sure that during Jesus' ministry, it's probably the case that both men and women were trying to get at him. No joke. But the scripture says that he faced all of those temptations, but he never fell. He never fell because he had a job to do. He had you to save, a people to save, and a world to redeem. So he went to the cross for a people who rejected him, for a prideful, envious, greedy, self-obsessed people. Where Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were untouched by the flames of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, the sun was consumed with the wrath of God due to sin. Paired with the slow death of crucifixion was the sharp agony of judgment for you and because the triune God loves you. But that consumption, that, that death, the wages of your sin were not the end of the story because death could not hold the Son of God down. He didn't just come to die. He came so that you might have life, life with him. And so after three days, he rose, declaring victory over sin, death, and the devil, proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the oppressed. That's the ultimate flex. These enemies that beset us, these enemies that crouch at the door for our destruction, they have been routed by the true king. The words of Nebuchadnezzar at the end of verse 29. There is no other God able to rescue in this way. That is the God that we can trust in. When we see the words of the Hebrew boys in verses 16 to 18, we have to remember that by the Holy Spirit, we must live by those same words. Idolatry ought to have no place in our hearts because our understanding of glory has been radically shifted. Christ is worthy of all honor and all praise and all of us. So if anything threatens that commitment, I must respond, what's more important, that thing or my Lord? If I'm asked to compromise, what do I do? I'm going to be honest. When I, I, I went through the job search process last year, and when, and when you do it for like seminary or religious studies jobs, they, sometimes people ask theological questions that they intend to weed you out. They want to put you kind of in a category and then figure, oh, yeah, you're one of us. You're not one of us. And so the temptation in those spaces was always there for me to, to kind of couch my beliefs in a way that I knew would be acceptable. But ultimately, I came to the conclusion that I've just got to be honest. My life is in the hands of the Lord. 
And so he'll put me where he needs me to be. And so I can graciously explain these things because, because I serve a God who is mighty and willing to come alongside me. I know that God can deliver because he already has. And even if I lose this job or lose this relationship or my candidate doesn't win or lose whatever, my God is still sitting on the throne of the universe. And so deliverance will come, though perhaps not in the way that I expected. So then the question is this, do you know this God? Do you know this God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ? This God, the Father, who sent God the Son to die and be raised and to ascend in order to send God the Holy Spirit to live within you. Is that what shapes your understanding of glory? Or are you settling for a statue of gold? Dear brother and dear sister, Daniel 3 ends with the promotion of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But Christ's sacrifice ended with an even better promotion. Philippians 2.9 says that God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The question is this, will we bow in joy and reverence, or will we bow under the heel of his conquering sandals? He invites you today, dear brother and dear sister. Lay your burdens at his feet. Repent and believe the gospel, and you will not walk through the fire alone. You will find that if you are united with Christ, that there are four people in your fire as well. Jesus says in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. There are four in your fire. You, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If there is anywhere you want to be, it is with the triune God by your side, above you, below you, in front of you, and behind you. And so what do you do when your back seems to be against the wall? What do you do when you, when you, when you, when you seem to be forced to compromise? Remember this. When you are poor in spirit, there are four in your fire. When you mourn, there are four in your fire. When you are meek, there are four in your fire. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, there are four in your fire. When you are merciful, when you are pure in heart, when you are a peacemaker, when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you, remember, there are four in your fire. Hallelujah. What a savior who flexes on his haters, of whom I have been chief, and yet still he loved and changed me, as he wishes to do with each and every one of us. Let's pray.